0: Chapter 1. Pre-Wed My own personal financial plan for the future was that my daddy would live forever. I never considered interviewing other potential candidates for the position, and I certainly never thought about taking care of my own self. As far as I was concerned, daddy had a lifetime appointment, and his lifetime would naturally coincide with my own. When all of a sudden his life was over, There I was with a whole bunch of my life left and no daddy to finance or direct it. Huh? Now there's a quandary for you right there. So what did I do? The only thing I thought I could do, I looked for another man to take his place. Let me just tell you, if you find yourself in a similar situation now or ever, this ain't the answer. In fact, it is the very antithesis of the answer. Now, don't misunderstand me. There's a cosmic difference between having someone who supports you and fixes things and handles all the pesky details of the financial side of life and believing that you need someone to support you and fix things and handle all the pesky details. Honey, I am all for sitting on your ass and being waited on hand and foot. It is great work if you can get it, as long as you know firsthand that you could do it for your own self should the need or desire ever arise. Because let me tell you something else I learned the very hard way. Every potential husband is a potential ex-husband or even a potential dead husband, and you need a plan just in case either scenario develops down the road. And sometimes, make that usually, whether he leaves your life upright or feet first, he leaves behind a big old mess. And who do you think gets to clean it up all by herself? Don't be looking around. It's you, sweetie. If you're going to go to college for pre-wed, I insist that you also take a full course in pre-death, pre-divorce, and get yourself an education that will prepare you for the unthinkable situation, taking care of yourself and possibly a bunch of children by yourself for a large part of your life. You'll sleep a whole lot better, I promise. Parents will sleep better, too, if they help their children learn this. Groom Selection Process once you're living in the world of reality, you're ready to think about the groom selection process. That sweet Seattle queen, Natalie, wrote me with a question about a vitally important issue. She's only about 30 and therefore larva, as we know, women under 40 are larva in sweet potato queendom. But she was doing the right thing and seeking counsel from me and dipping into the vast storehouse of knowledge and experience held in trust by my queendom. Natalie had had, it seems, the great good fortune of a Southern birth and childhood in North Carolina, but along about her mid-twenties, her parents divorced, and her mama decided she needed to move to the other side of the country for a breather. Our Natalie decided that sounded good to her, too, so she loaded up and moved off to Seattle with Mama. For a few years, she was liking it out there just fine. She and Mama both have good jobs and share a home they love, but you knew there would be a but in there, didn't you? Me, too. Everything is fine, Queen Natalie said, but she is 100% not attracted to the men out there. It took her a little while to figure out why the local guys were off-putting in such a big way, but it finally dawned on her. They don't smell right to her. She had grown up around and learned to love men who smell like pit barbecue and the occasional oil change. The men out there smell like decidedly unmanly things like cologne and mocha lattes. I see her problem. I feel her pain. Natalie was shocked to learn her olfactory sense played such a big part in her love life. I was not at all surprised. I've known firsthand for years that most of us humans really and truly cannot get past the end of our own noses. Smell matters. A lot, they say. They are famous scientists in France, I suppose. I worked with a guy once who was always claiming to have read about major breakthroughs in whatever bullshit he was peddling that day. When questioned, he always attributed the breakthroughs to famous scientists in France. Anyway, they say that blindfolded mothers can identify their own newborn babies by smell. I haven't tried to do that, but I do know that the smell of a baby's head, and yes, in particular, my own baby's head, is just about the most highly addictive, thrilling, and yet soporific fragrance I have ever personally encountered. The smell of a man has always been of paramount importance to me, too. Natalie was blindsided by her nose, but not me. I've always trusted mine. There've been men I liked just fine at first meeting, but upon the first close contact, hup, here, out of here. Not that they smelled bad. Who would even go out with a stinky guy? No, they just didn't smell right to me. The right triggers just weren't firing, and that was that. And we're not talking about cologne here. We're talking about skin. The particular hot spot for me is the skin in the area where their jaw meets their neck and drifting on down to where their neck joins their shoulders. I'll hug a guy and give him a good neck snort and see what registers. The right smell will give me a definite twitch. Your nose, or at least my nose, will sometimes know when a relationship has ended before your brain does. I remember one relationship in particular that was going from bad to worse, but I was still hanging on in that inexplicable way we too frequently do. After an exceptionally bad boyfriend day, he hauled off and hugged me, and I stuck my nose in that neck spot and sniffed, and boy, Heidi, I'll tell you, I just knew. We had hugged and everything else our last time. He no longer smelled right to me. He weren't mine, and more important, I weren't his no more. But back to Queen Natalie's question for me. What she wanted to know was, did I think that she should suck it up and stick it out in Seattle and hope to, A, happen on the only barbecue chef in the great Northwest, B, change her taste and smells, or C, just become a nun, N-O-N-E, like a nun, N-U-N, only without the religious theme, or should she, D, go into debt to finance a move back to the South to sniff out her Mr. Wright? I think you know what I advised. So what we're saying here is this. However many ways you need to be particular in this whole groom selection process, you make sure you don't skip any of them. You pay close attention, honey child, because if there is anything you don't like about him now, I can assure you, you're going to not like it a whole lot more post-nup than you ever thought about doing pre-nup. Chapter 2 Making a Bride in Just 365 Days My esteemed editor, Joanne Pritchard-Morris, questioned whether any woman other than a sweet little larva would spend a whole year planning a wedding. I assured her that it happens all the time. I personally know of one woman well into her 60s, much denial in plastic surgery to the contrary, who spent an entire year planning the formal wedding of her 80-something-year-old mother, complete with the groom's great-granddaughter as the flower girl. Any woman of any age can lose her mind over a wedding, and that's just the truth. You will need to free up all your time for your year of planning. And when I say free up all your time, I do mean all of it. You should definitely quit your job. There won't be time for it, and the stress can cause unsightly under-eye circles that can be difficult to mask even with the most excellent concealer, and you don't want to spend all your time and money on the perfect wedding only to end up looking like a raccoon now, do you? As soon as you decide that you actually will marry a particular person, you should go straight to the Human Resources Department at your place of employment and tender your resignation. If you fooled your employers into thinking that you're a fairly decent employee, they might consider giving you a year's sabbatical for this boondoggle, thinking that once you get the wedding out of your system, you will return and do some actual work again. But under no circumstances will they want to continue your employment during the wedding planning period. They already know that you won't perform any work-related activities for the duration and that you'll subject everybody else to non-stop discussion and show-and-tell of the entire process featuring vast quantities of photos. And the HR person wants to slit his or her throat at the very thought of it. Since you won't be gainfully employed during the wedding planning process, your best bet is to have parents, birth or adoptive, who are rich as God and nearly as generous, and insist that you quit that pesky job and let them bring over wheelbarrows full of money for your personal use. This is what you'd call your ideal situation. If, on the other hand, your parents don't even have wheelbarrows, let alone money to fill them with, or if... Let's just say they have something irritating like their own lives on which they want to fritter away your rightful wedding funds. Then you should have commenced saving your money the very minute you had any vague inkling you might want to have a wedding involving yourself one day far in the future. Notice I did not say that you might have wanted to get married one day. Getting married is a negligible expense, but having a wedding is another deal altogether. You should have been collecting cans from the roadsides from the time you could walk. You should have eaten your first-grade paste and hoarded your lunch money. Every time your big sister offered to pay you to leave her and her friends alone, you should have accepted and deposited the bribe in an interest-sparing account. Same with your tooth fairy earnings. As soon as you were no longer covered under the child labor laws, you should have been working as many hours as possible and squirreling away every dime. All so you could not only afford the most absurdly extravagant wedding imaginable, but so you'd also be financially able to take...